Uh, Our text this morning is Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 3 to 8 is where we're going to be camping out today. We've in in a series entitled Marked by Mercy as we look at what it looks like to live lives not for the mercy of God, in other words, for his kindness and compassion, but from it. This is what God has done in our lives, and so now here's how we ought to live, and that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 12, and that's where we are this morning. We're taking a look at how to be the church from Romans 12 this fall. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 3, if you don't have a copy of it in front of you, it'll be on the screen to follow along as we read. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in our proportion to faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If we take a look at what it means to be the church as opposed to just going to church, one of the distinctions or differences between those two ways of operation is this, that oftentimes whenever we just go to church, we're going to church to enjoy the ministry of a few. Right? And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a ministry that is done well, that is done um, to, to the glory of God and for the edification, the building up, the good of those who are part of the congregation. There's nothing wrong with that. But a part of making the shift from going to church to being the church is that we no longer just attend in order to enjoy the ministry of a few, but we as many engage in the work of ministry. So we're not just enjoying the work of ministry, we're engaging in the work of ministry for ourselves. There's an interesting passage in John's gospel. In John chapter five, Jesus receives a rebuke from the religious leaders of his day because he had healed somebody on the Sabbath and he's not supposed to be working on the Sabbath, right? That's supposed to be his downtime where he can sit in the recliner and kick his feet up and watch football and eat chips and dip, right? That's what the Sabbath is for, right? And so the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they rebuke him for healing someone on the Sabbath because he was working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'll see your rebuke and raise you a better one. <laughs> and this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them and he says, my father is working until now and I am working. In other words, Jesus says, God is always at work. God is always working. He's always working around us. He's working within us. He's working at times through us. God is always at work. And so it it makes sense for me to be working because my father is working. He's always at work. He's always active. He's always pursuing. He's always pushing. And listen, for some of you this morning in the room, God has brought you here. That was interesting. God has brought you here because he's at work in your life. God is at work to save some of you this morning. God is at work to open your eyes to see your sin and your need for a savior. God is at work to make, bring you from death to life and from darkness to light and from despair to hope. He's graciously wooing some of you and that's why you showed up here this morning. You don't realize it yet, but that's why you showed up here today. 
You thought it was because somebody invited you, but really God is at work in your life and he's tapping you on the shoulder. Maybe he's touching your heart to show you that you are indeed estranged from him, that the relationship that you thought you had with God may be non-existent and you're alienated from God, but that he has provided a way for you to be made right with him and his name is Jesus. That by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, you get to be put right with God. See, God is at work in some of us this morning to save, to save, and that's why you're here. For others of us this morning, God is at work in our lives to sanctify us, right? Not to, to, we've been put right with God, but he's wanting to put us back together in the image of Jesus. He's wanting to change things about us. He's wanting to chisel away at our character until this image that's produced is more and more and more reflective of his son. He's at work in us to sanctify, to grow you into the kind of husband that God would desire you to be, who would love his wife as Christ loved the church. To grow you into the kind of wife that God would desire you to be, who would nurture and respect and affirm her husband's leadership. To grow you into the kind of man or woman who would be able to move toward marriage in a healthy way if you're single right now or if he has that gift of singleness for you all of your life, that he would be working in you to sharpen you and to chisel away to make Christ sufficient for all of your needs. For some of you who are students, you're here this morning because God's brought you here to continue to work in your life, to make you the kind of child in your home that would joyfully embrace the authority of a family that he's put over you for your protection and provision. God is always at work. For some of you, it's to save. For some of us, it's to sanctify. He's always at work saving and sanctifying sinners like me. <laughs> always at work. He's at work planting churches. He's at work reviving churches churches that are on the on death's doorstep he's at work sending missionaries to those who have not yet heard in other parts of the globe he's at work caring for widows and orphans he's at work restoring marriages he's at work mending parent-child relationships and bringing prodigals home he's at work freeing people from addictions and awakening a love in their hearts for people inside and outside the church he's at work healing hurts and moving people past hangups and objections and obstacles to faith in Jesus. God is always at work. And the crazy thing about this, one of the most cra- it blows my mind, that God is always at work and yet one of the main means that he uses to accomplish his work is me and is you. There's got to be a more efficient way for God to accomplish his ends than us. Have you looked in the mirror lately? (laughs) Have you taken inventory lately? There's got to be a more efficient way. But the the mind-blowing thing is that in, in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says that when he ascends to the Father and he sends the Spirit, that his followers are going to truly, truly, I say to you in John 14, 12, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father, I'm gonna send the Spirit and you're gonna do greater works than I've done. Now what Jesus is talking about there is he's not saying you're gonna do more miraculous works than I did, but the scope and the breadth and the duration of the work of God in human history across the globe will expand outward until the end of the age. So that God would be working on other continents and God would be working in other countries. 
God would be working in homes and in hospitals. God would be working in middle schools and in high schools. God would be working to, in suburban Dallas, and God would be working in rural India. God would be working all across the globe, in all places, at all times. And so the work of God continues to expand, and his followers would do greater works in scope and breadth and duration unto the end of the age. That's what Jesus promises us. That's what he teaches us. And, 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 and you're going, where's Romans 12? We're, we're getting there. <laughs> all right? But God is at work, and he includes you and I in that work. But not only does he include us, but he equips us and gifts us for it. And that's where Romans 12 comes into play. That God gifts us to do the work that he said that we would do. It's pretty amazing. When you think about being used by God in that capacity. And so in Romans 12 and a couple other texts that we want to dig into this morning, we want to see, the first thing we want to see is this, about being a part of this work that God is doing all around us and even within us, is that the church has one mission, but our members have many functions. The church has one mission, but our members have many functions. Listen, no matter where the church is planted, no matter how old the church is, whether it's a church plant or a historic congregation, whether it's on this continent or another continent in this country or another country, there is no other mission given by God to his church other than the one that we find in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. That's the mission for every church in every place, in every location, in every era of history is in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus, before he ascends to the Father, he says this to his disciples. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's no other mission than this that Jesus gives. There's, there's, there's no other mission. In fact, if, if we're to try and shift the mission of the church, we're shifting from what God has prescribed to what we would prefer. Whenever we try and change the mission of the church, we're basically trying to change the direction and the way the church is supposed to be moving based upon our preferences. Like we want the church to do this, and so we believe this is why she exists. And yet we don't have that luxury because Jesus says, this is why the church exists. This is what I've called you to do. This is what I've commissioned you to do, to go and make disciples. Now that mission may be expressed in a variety of ways, depending upon the context in which the church is located, but, it's, but, but there, is no, there is no different mission for this church versus this church. If it's a church of Jesus Christ who's proclaiming faithfully the gospel, then this is her mission. And the way that we put language around that here at Redeemer is around three S's. You've heard them before. Some of you have the t-shirts on this morning. Is that we exist to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries. That's why we exist. That's our mission. Jesus says to go and make disciples. A part of making disciples is seeing people converted to faith in Jesus. As we show up to share the good news that though we were estranged from God on account of our sin and that we rebelled against him and we were born as like Forrest Gump running away from God and we just keep running and running and running and running, that God has pursued after us. He's come after us in Jesus Christ. And that he's, Jesus has lived in our place, the life of sinless perfection that we could not live, and Jesus has died in our place, and he suffered the, the, the verdict that we should have been rendered. 
in separation from God and that Jesus has been risen from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father and that one day he'll return to make everything new. Everything new. And so we show up to report that to people, to share that with people so they might be converted to faith in Jesus. So we share the gospel and then we shape disciples. Part of shaping disciples is seeing their character formed in such a way as God chisels away at them and seeing their convictions formed in such a way that what they confess to believe, they're actually living out with their actions. Their doctrine is informing their deeds. And so we're shaping disciples in the way that we teach, in the way that we open up our lives to others we talked about last week. And so we share the gospel, we shape disciples, and then we send missionaries. Jesus says there in the text, he says, go. And whether you go to Africa, or whether you go to Russia, or whether you go to Dallas, or whether you go to Rockwall, or whether you go to Fate, or whether you go to your next door neighbor, it's part of going. Being sent as missionaries into our neighborhoods and across the globe. That's, how we, that's the language we put around the mission that Jesus has given us here, and there's only one of them. The church has one mission. And yet, in the text that we just read this morning, in Romans 12, Paul says the members of that church... They have all different kinds of functions as they participate in that one mission. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so that every member has a different function. Now, when you read the other text about spiritual gifts across the Bible, one of the things that comes, uh, becomes evident is that there's basically two categories of giftings that God gives. He gives gifts of service, and he gives gifts of speech. He gives gifts of words, and he gives gifts of works. Right, two basic categories. And here in Romans 12, we find some of those different functions that people have that God's wired them with for that one mission that's been given to his church. And the, there's seven gifts in Romans 12 that he speaks of. Prophecy. In other words, a, a word from God that God would speak through certain people to his church to instruct and direct. Some, some folks have the gift of teaching. that they, when they, when they, can, they open the Bible and they explain doctrines in a way that makes sense to people and that connects with their life and they're able to apply it. Or the gift of encouragement. There's just something about the way that God has wired some that he has saved and is sanctifying that, man, when they open their mouth and they speak to others, it's like, it's like that first cold front in the fall, right? That just kind of pushes in. It's just like this wave of refreshment that washes over their soul, and they're encouraged by it. That God has given some the gift of leadership, and they're able to inspire. And they're able to see steps out in the future of where we need to head, so God has given some the gifts of, gifts of words or gifts of speech and prophecy and teaching, exhortation and leadership. Others have gifts of works. They might have the gift of service. Right? They don't want to be on a stage. They want to be behind the scenes and just kind of plowing away. Not a whole lot of recognition. They don't want to be in the spotlight. They just want to serve faithfully behind the scenes somewhere. Or the gift of giving, that whenever they see a need, they, don't, they may not make six figures. But when they see a need, their heart moves toward it in such a way with cheerfulness, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, that they just want to be generous. Or God's given some the gift of mercy when they see people hurting, when they see people broken. Like they don't, they don't pull away from needy people, but they want to push in to needy people because they have the gift of mercy. Right? Now, there's several other texts in the New Testament that speak of other gifts, but I think all of those texts are not exhaustive lists of giftings but they're examples of the way that God gives people in his church. So some of you might be gifted writers or gifted artists or gifted photographers or gifted tech people. 
Right? You got all these kinds of gifts that God has given for the sake of his church that could be employed in service and ministry. Not to, not to just enjoy the work of the few, but to engage in it for ourselves. All right? It can be used, each of those functions can be used to share, shape, and send. We have a young lady in our church right now who's a very gifted writer. She's written stories that have gone up on our blog about people in our, in our congregation and God's grace and his activity and his work in their life. I started sending blog posts that I write over to her to edit them. Um, and when they come back to me, I think she's in a hospital somewhere because there's so much red all over the document. But you know what it does? It, 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 makes, it makes a guy who got his education in South Louisiana sound like a real writer. So he's using her gift to serve, right? She has a different function, a different function. One mission, many functions. So how do you discover the function that God has wired and equipped you for? Take a, just a few moments to talk about that this morning. I think there's probably th- three ways I want to encourage you if, you, if you. if you don't know where God has wired you or how he's equipped you, three things. First, and this is only a starting point, is not the ending, it's not the finish line, right? You can take spiritual gift assessments, okay? You can take assessments. Um, and so there's inventories online that you can go and you can fill out. There's some links to some of those on our website, some blogs that we've written in the past. And so you can, you can take spiritual gift inventories or assessments online. They're going to ask you a series of questions, and you go in and rate those things one to five. And then so at the end, it kind of generates this, this, this data that you've, it, that you've given it. It's processed and spit something out to you and said you might be gifted in these two or three areas. Now, I say this is a starting line and not the finish line because right, the, the, the assessments, if you take enough of them, <laughs> if you take enough of them, you go, man, I really want to be gifted in mercy. And so you look, at the, you look at the assessment, and it says, do you like people? Of course I like people. It's probably better to have somebody else take that assessment for you because they look at it and they go, do they like people? No, they don't like people. I've seen them with people, right? You probably don't have the gift of mercy, <laughs> right? And so you can start there, but that's not the place to finish. So assessments, and then maybe you consider what affections or aspirations that God has given you in your life. What, what passions do you have? What stirs your heart? What causes your mind to turn and race when you lay in bed at night or whenever you see something? See, those of you who have the gift of mercy, God may stir within you every time you hear about a need that someone has personally and you want to move towards them. You want to be a part of God using you to help meet that need, right? Or, or you, you hear about the great great global needs that exist, and there's something that awakens within you because God has just wired you in such a way that you, would, you just want to be merciful to others. Or whenever you hear um, the Bible taught and preached in ways that are compelling and clear, it stirs something within you because God's given you a gift of teaching, and you want to exercise that same kind of gift one day. Right? There might be all kinds of ways that God stirs in you, affections that he gives you, passions that he gives you, aspirations that you have. For ministry, might be indications of the way God has gifted you. But then finally, affirmations. Where, where do you get affirmation from people? Right? So if you, if you show up and, man, you've, you've got like seven spreadsheets and you've organized all this stuff that we're trying to do and you're implementing that and people come alongside and say, man, you are so gifted at administration. You can just think through all the details and organize everything. In fact, like you, you think in spreadsheets. You kind of get all excited about spreadsheets every time there's a new spreadsheet to be um, created. There's like there's, there's a, a passion that just builds in your heart. The church needs people like you because that's not me. 
okay? That is not me. You might be gifted in administration when people affirm that. So assessments, aspirations or affections, and affirmations help identify maybe how God has wired and gifted you. And so once you discover that function that's a part of God's bigger mission, then what do you do with it? And Paul says in verse 6 that you use it. That you use it. Now let me say this before we move on to how we use it. You, you use it, you don't abuse it. Okay? You use it, don't abuse it. Now one of the ways you go, how do you abuse a gift that God has given? Let me, let me tell you. One of the ways that you can abuse a gift that God has given is by building your identity on the giftedness. Building your identity on the giftedness. And so instead of your gifts being a means of service, they become a measure of your value. Become a measure of your value. How important you are. What kind of standing you have. And so you use the gift that God has given you to build yourself up as opposed to build the church up. You don't use it in humility. You use it out of pride. And you think, as Paul says in verse 3, more highly of yourself than you ought to because maybe you have a gift that is seen rather than one that's behind the scenes. And listen, those of you who are gifted with gifts of words and you're in front of people, often this is a tendency and a temptation for you. That you would use the gift not as a means of service, but as a measure of your value. It's one way to abuse the gifting. But look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Even Paul the apostle says, I'm saying this to you not as one who is exalting himself above you, but one who is just exercising his calling. By, the me by, by, by means of the grace that God has given me, I'm saying this to you. Don't be puffed up and proud in the way that you exercise your gift. You've got to have a, a, a renewed mind, a transformed way of thinking about yourself so that you don't look in the mirror and measure your value on the basis of your performance. But that you understand that, that God, no matter how you're gifted across the board, that you measure yourself on the basis of the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. The measure of faith. In other words, God has a rule, like a, a, a tape measure, and that tape measure is the gospel. There's no one who is more important or less important. They were all fallen and broken sinners who are being saved and sanctified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. All of us. And so there is not one of us who's more important than another. So don't build your identity on the way that God has gifted you. So you use them, but you don't abuse them. And you use them because God has given them. You use them because God has given them. That's what he says in verse 6. Having different gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. God has given them. And listen, this is one of the antidotes against that building your identity on them and measuring your value by them. This is one of the antidotes because, because oftentimes when we build our identity on our giftedness, we're doing so for our own glory. We're doing so for our own glory. But if you understand what Paul says in verse 6, then the one who gives the grace and the gift is the one who gets the glory that God has given them, that you didn't generate them, you didn't create them, but God gave that gift to you. So you use it because it's, a, it's, it's from his hands. It's his gift. 
You want to be a good steward of his gift. And listen, let me just say this. God, God, doesn't, God doesn't participate in pointless gift exchanges, okay? At Christmas parties, you ever been to those Christmas parties where you do like a white elephant exchange? Everybody just kind of rummages through their closet or their garage, and they find like five rusty nails, and they just put it in a bag, and it's like, oh, maybe there's jewelry in there. It's like shaking it around, and it's clanging together, and they open it up, and it's like five rusty nails. And so I know who else in the room wants the five rusty nails, other than maybe a carpenter because he ran out of them last week. But who wants the five rusty nails? It's pointless gift exchanges where you're just kind of having fun, and it's all in good humor. But God is not a white elephant. He's a gracious father, and every gift that he gives is for the sake and welfare of his people. There is not one singular unimportant gift that he has given. So do not despise the gift that God has given you by thinking that it's unnecessary. By thinking that, it, it, man, it really doesn't matter if I use this gift in the church. They're going to be okay without it. So use them, don't abuse them. Use them because God has given them and use them because your church needs them. Because your church needs them. Paul says in verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. When Paul says we're members of one another, what he's talking about is there's an interdependence that we have with each other, not an independence from each other. Let me me break it down to you this way. Try and make it plain. Look, there's a difference between a collection of antique plates like some of you students, maybe you go to your grandparents' house and they've got like all this glass and maybe some china up in these cabinets and stuff. I remember my grandparents had all this red glass. They just had a massive collection of this red glass. They used to sit in front of these mirrors uh, in, their, in their home and so on these glass shelves in front of these mirrors and so it was, like, it was like a house of mirrors every time you walked in and looked in that room. Uh, but I can remember this collection of, of red glass on their shelves now listen, there's not a, there was plates and cups and there was you know, salad plates and, 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 and uh, salad dressing ladle thingies. I, I, I don't know. There was all kinds of stuff in there. But listen, not any one of those pieces was dependent upon the other pieces for their existence or for their functionality. Right? You could use the salad boat dressing ladle thing to pour salad onto a plate that wasn't another piece of red glass. They, weren't, they, weren't, they were independent of all of each other. You could have one without having all the rest of them. But that's not how God has designed the church. He didn't design us as a collection of individuals that can be disconnected or disengaged from each other. He designed us as, a, as a individuals who are brought together and pieced together in such a way that we're not independent of, but interdependent upon, kind of like a house. Like a house, like all the finishes in your house are dependent upon the framing and the framing is dependent upon the foundation. Or it's like a body, right? Your body, the the senses and systems of your body, they're interdependent on each other, not independent from each other. So let me think about it this way. Your brain and your heart need each other. They need each other, right? Your brain fires and sends a signal through your nervous system to that muscle that beats inside your chest to pump blood, boom, boom, boom. And your heart pumps blood to your brain. And so if one of those two things stops working, it's not good news for you. You die. 
Why? Because there's an interdependence between those two things. And that is how God has designed the church. That though we who are many, we're individually members of one another. Of one another. And so that means there are some gifts in the life of the church that all the gifts are interdependent upon each other. That's why God's equipped you in the way that he has. Listen, those with the gifts of teaching might prepare a lesson or a sermon and show up But in a church plant like ours, if there are not those with the gifts of help and service showing up to set out chairs and set up sound systems, there's no place for us to gather. And you can set up an amazing facility, but if nobody's there exercising their gift to teach, then there's nobody opening the Bible saying, thus saith the Lord. There's an interdependence of those giftings upon one another. So there's no unimportant gift. There's no unnecessary gift. And we're interdependent upon each other. And because of this, because of this, any church that allows habitually unemployed members will eventually not advance, but they will atrophy. You know what atrophy is? It's when muscles begin to shrink because they hadn't been used. Because they hadn't been used. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of, the, one of the best things I've ever read on this issue in his little book called Life Together says this. He says, in a Christian community, everything depends upon whether each individual is an indispensable link in a chain. Only when even the smallest link is securely interlocked is the chain unbreakable. A community which allows unemployed members to exist within it will perish because of them. Now, I would add to what he says, habitually unemployed members. And here's why. Here's why. I don't know if, you, if you've ever torn a ligament or broken a bone, right? And you go to the hospital and the doctor looks at you and he says, listen, you got three to six weeks on crutches um, or we're going to put you in a cast or a boot or we've got to wrap this thing up. We've got to splint it. We've got to immobilize it, right? Why? Because it's hurting. It's hurting. And listen, there are some of us in the room this morning who are just, we're, we're right now, even though we wouldn't admit it to anybody, we're hurting. We're hurting. And there are times and seasons in which, yes, God has gifted you and he's equipped you for service in his church, but whenever you're hurting deeply, sometimes you need some immobilization to heal. You need some immobilization to heal. Or it's kind of like if, those of you who went on vacation this last summer, you took a step away from the normal rhythms and routines of life to breathe and rest for a little bit, right? And so some, some of us at times, we need seasons of respite, of retreat, of backing away from ministry responsibility so that we can breathe, so that we can rest. But if you live on vacation, then you eventually end up homeless, <laughs> right? So here's what I want to say publicly this morning is that if you are in that place where you're hurting or you're tired and you need some immobilization for a while, or you need a vacation from ministry responsibility, you don't need my permission, but I'm going to give it to you to take it. To take it. And we will trust and pray that God will raise up others who would step into some of those roles, and we will trust and we will pray that God would send people from the outside who would help us get in the trenches while you're resting and healing until you're ready to step back in.
can't be habitually unemployed, but there are times in which you need a vacation. Now, in the time that we have left, here's what I want to do. I want to give you four practical ways, okay, quickly, four practical ways that you get to use these gifts. However God's wired you, however he's gifted you and equipped you, four practical ways that you use them, okay? You ready? All right. Some of you are, because you're nodding, others of you are falling asleep. Four practical ways. First, I'm going to give you in sets of twos. First, use them to care for and create ministry. Use them to care for and create ministry. There is a difference, isn't there, between babysitting and birthing a child? (laughs) Right? Those of you who are moms, you know the difference well. There's a difference between caring for and conceiving a child, babysitting and birthing a child. We have babysitters that come to our house at times, and they're there for five hours, and they show up, or four hours, and they're there, and they make sure the kids don't burn the house down. They make sure nobody like, leaves the gas running on the stove. They make sure that nobody who's not supposed to be in our home comes in our home, that our kids get food and are fed, and that the house is still standing whenever we arrive back. Right? That's what a babysitter does for you. Right? They provide you a little break to step away, and they care for something that's already been conceived. They babysit something that's already been birthed. And there are some of us in the room this morning who that's the first step for us in the employment of our gifts, is that we need to begin to care for ministry that someone else has conceived and given birth to. That we need to come along and begin to care for some of that. If you have the gift of teaching, right? If you have the gift of teaching and don't know where to start right now, if you go, man, God's wired me to teach, I don't know where to start. Start with teaching in our kids' ministry. Something that's already been conceived, something that's already been birthed, come alongside and begin to teach in our kids' ministry. Right? As you plant seeds of the gospel and faithfully water those week after week, month after month, teach there. If you want to grow in that gift, teach with our students on Wednesday nights. We need more small group leaders. Teach there. Leverage that gift there. Something that's already been birthed. You don't have to push really hard to get it out. Might be a little too graphic. I'm sorry. But you can use it to care for as opposed to create ministry. For the gift of hospitality, you don't know where to start. Start with greeting people on Sunday mornings. The gift of service, you don't know where to start. Start with teardown and set up every week. If you have the gift of administration and don't know where to start, start with helping us organize and execute events that we already want to have on the calendar, that we're already moving toward. Right? You can start by caring for a ministry that's already been conceived. But some of you in the room... God has wired to give birth to ministry. And you've, you're, you've matured and you've grown and God has stretched you and he's shaped you. And God has wired some of you to give birth. Listen, the job of the pastor is not to create all the ministry opportunities. A big part of a pastor's job is to consult and cheerlead you as you do. As God moves, as God directs, as God inspires, as God gives a vision for things that need to happen, that we would come alongside as elders and pastors and staff and say, you know what, we want to celebrate with you, we want to consult with you, we want to cheerlead and say, yes, let's go tackle that. So some of you need to be conceiving ministry. A part of the beauty of the local church is that all the ministry opportunities that should not come from the top down, but they should rise from the bottom up as God has gifted his church for his mission. Listen, some of you, you have more creativity in your little pinky than I do in my whole body. And so there, you, you dream about bigger things or ways to engage in ministry. 
I would love to sit down with you and talk about what it looks like to birth and conceive ministry. So you can use it to care for ministry that's already been conceived, or you can use it to give birth to something. How exciting would that be? To be on the front lines of what God is doing in our community by giving birth to a ministry that's going to meet a need in the lives of people who are far from God and help them grow closer to Him. The other two ways that you can use your gifts is not only to care for and conceive ministry or create ministry, but it's also to help the church mature and mobilize. Help the church mature and mobilize. You use them to minister inside the walls of the church to help us mature into the fullness of Christ, and you use them to help us mobilize for mission in the community, to be a part of taking the gospel to people who have not yet heard. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 11 to 14, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." See, a part of the reason God has gifted and equipped us, you, is to help the church mature, to help the church grow. That God has gifted certain individuals in the life of the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and that work that they would engage in would help the church mature to full manhood. In other words, that would help spiritual infants move to spiritual adolescents, and spiritual adolescents move to spiritual adults. And they make progress as they take steps along that way in their, in, their, in their growth toward maturation. So you use your gift of teaching to help people mature. You use your gift of leadership to help people mature. You use your gift of mercy or administration or of helps and service to help people mature. One of the ways that you can help people mature is, is, is indeed the gift of teaching. As God's wired some of you to teach and use that gift to instruct spiritual infants in the life of the church. So that, as Paul says in verse 14, they don't just keep swallowing hook, line, and sinker every wind of doctrine that blows through their television set or their podcast. Listen, listen, spiritual infants like physical infants, they're not very discerning. I remember giving birth to a child. No, well, I didn't give birth to a child. I remember Karen giving birth to both of our children. And at the time that she did, right, we were in the process, as soon as they started kind of like crawling around, we had to baby-proof the house. Now, why do you baby-proof the house? Why do you put locks on your cabinets and child-proof deals on your doors? Why do you do that? Because kids are not very discerning. They will drink from the toilet, right? They'll open up the cabinet and they'll pull out the, the 409. They'll just be chugging that stuff, right? They're not discerning. They'll take anything. They'll eat anything. They'll drink anything because they're not very discerning. And spiritual infants are the same. And so God uses those with the gift of teaching to help them mature to where they go, man, that didn't taste right. That didn't taste right. Or he might use those with the gift of leadership to inspire people to take steps away from their self-focused life toward an others-focused life. It's another thing about infants, right? Infants are not very other-focused. I don't ever remember a time in which either of our kids woke up in the middle of the night hungry or dirty and thought, they look so peaceful over there sleeping. I'm just, I'm just going to let them get a full night's sleep. 
No, what do they do? I mean, they scream at the top of their lungs until somebody shows up, right? And changes their dirty diaper or puts a bottle in their mouth. Right? Infants are incredibly self-focused, and spiritual infants are as well. It's all about their needs and what they want and their preferences. And so God uses the gift of leadership at times to help inspire others to take steps toward an other-focused life. Seeing that there's people around me who have needs that may be far greater than my own. So you use the gifts to help us mature, but you also use them to help us mobilize. To help us mobilize. To take steps toward our mission and being a part of what God's doing all around us in the world. See, in, in, in the text... In the text, in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, Paul says that we were to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, that there would be a picture of Jesus through his body called the church that is full and is fascinating to the world. That they would see in the church this full and fascinating picture of Jesus as his body comes together to work under his headship and authority, and they're using their gifts for, to mature and mobilize people. Those of you who are evangelists may be able to help equip us to share the gospel faithfully and inspire and encourage us to do so. Those with the gifts of administration, maybe you can organize events that we're trying to use to reach out to the community in ways that when people show up, they're like, what do I do here? I don't know, so just go find something, right? But no, here's, here's a line-by-line line line list of things that we need to get done, when they need to get done, how they need to get done, how many people we need to do them to engage in outreach in the community, right? So you use your gifts to mature and to mobilize so that there might be a full and fascinating picture of Jesus that's presented to the world that would be compelling and they would come to him. And that God would use that to draw people to faith. See, this is why the church needs you and why you need the church, Four of you in your, four of your best friends sitting in your living room, hanging out on Tuesday nights or, or Saturday nights or Sunday mornings because you've given up on the church. Four people sitting in their living room together cannot present a full and fascinating picture of Jesus and all of the intricacies and complexities of how God has gifted and wired people to be interdependent and work together. Yes, we need people sitting on living room couches and discussing the scriptures and serving one another, but there needs to be a part of a bigger body that God is using to say, this, this is my body. And I'll, I'll close with this. This does not start. Students, I want you to hear something. Those of you who are middle school and high school students in the room this morning, this does not start 10 or 20 years from now for you. Adults, it doesn't start five or 10 years from now from you whenever you're in a different season of life, right? Have you ever thought about that? I've heard people say, well, it's not a good season for us right now, we can't serve, because we got little kids, like in infants. And then like the next season, when they've got like toddlers who are running around, it's not a good, it's not a good season for us right now. And then, then the next season when they get into grade school and they're like going to soccer practice and, and piano recitals and all this, it's not a good season for us right now. And then whenever they get into high school and they're always going to football games and cheerleading contests and gymnastics meets, it's, it's not a good season for us right now. And then whenever they leave the house, like it's not a good season for us right now because we're so tired from raising our kids. We just need, there's never a good season. There's never a good season. Students, if it doesn't start 10 years from now, it starts with you employing your gifts right now because you are a part of the church if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And adults, it starts for you right now as well, not 
in that dream fantasy world that we all have, I have one in the back of my mind too, by the way, um, of what it's going to be like five years from now or ten years from now in a different season. How boring would it be? How boring would it be if at the end of your days you come to lay in a hospice bed and you think about back on the totality of your church experience and the totality of your church experience has been showing up at church on Sundays, singing some songs, listening to a lot of C-minus sermons, maybe writing a check every once in a while, and then going to lunch. How, how boring is that? When God has equipped you and gifted you and wired you to be a part of presenting a full and fascinating picture of Jesus to the world. My prayer for us is that we would not reach that day and be like Oscar Schindler in the end of Schindler's list, if you remember that scene where the war is over and they're, 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 all the Jews are being released from the concentration camps and he's there and he had leveraged so much for the sake of that mission. And he stands around and he says, I could have done more. I could have done more. I don't want to be there. And I don't want you to either. Let's pray together to that end. Father, we come today our deep dependence upon you, God. I know there are many in this room who are tired. I know there are many in this room who are hurting. But God, I know that you are sufficient and that you are gracious. You're able to heal and you're able to revive. And I pray that you would. I pray that as we push toward planting a church here in the heart of Rockwall County, that you would give us energy, that you would give us vitality, that you would give us favor, that you would give us um, a, a chance to immobilize if we need to for a while or to, or to rest and vacation if we need to for a while. And God, if so, that you would bring in others who would step into the trenches and push and push and push and push until we're able to step back into those areas of responsibility and service. God, you've gifted us to be a part of this great mission of making disciples. May we not settle for anything less. May we not settle for just attending church, but may, may we be captivated by the opportunity that we have to declare and present Christ to the world as his body working together, interdependent upon each other, using the gifts that you have given for the sake of your people to create and conceive of ministry and to mature and mobilize your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.